your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there to Genesis chapter 25, and we're uh, continuing in our study of Genesis by looking at a, a very popular story again, like so many of these stories in the book of Genesis. Um, we're going to look at the birth of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob is probably uh, next to Abraham, one of the, the greatest figures of the book of Genesis. And so we're going to see from just the very beginning of his life how significant his life is and, and what God's purposes is uh, are for Jacob in uh, the calling that he gives him and the prophecy that he gives for his life here in the beginning of the, this story. Just to remember, as a reminder, we've been marching through the book of Genesis and we've looked kind of chapter by chapter at each of the stories, the significant points in each of the chapters that we've come to. And uh, we have for the last, what, 13 chapters been uh, looking at the life of Abraham and how God came to Abraham in the land of Ur and gave him a promise that he would bless him and that he would make his name great and he would make him a blessing to the whole world through the lineage that he would bring about. And through thick and thin, God has been faithful to Abraham. He's given him victories over kings that were uh, greatly more powerful than him. He's uh, been faithful to give him a son, even when it was physically impossible for him to have a son. And now... He moves on to the next story in the life of Abraham and his descendants by showing that God is going to continue his faithfulness through Isaac and ultimately through Isaac's son, Jacob. And so that's where we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 19, I mean, Genesis chapter 25. And we're going to start in verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. So follow along with me as I read from Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. I'll read that. And pray, and then we'll get into our sermon. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, God's word says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. 
Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today asking for your understanding. Lord, we know that all the events that surround us and swirl around in our society and we see them played out day after day on the 24-hour news cycle, Lord, we know that they are not just random events that mean nothing, but ultimately they speak to us of your judgment and your purposes in this world. And so, Father, may we see them rightly and may we see other people rightly as we consider what your word says to us today. Lord, reprove us and correct us. Use your word to change us and to make us into the people that you would have us to be. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there's there's so much going on in the world today, as we've already prayed about and we've already said that as a pastor, it's very hard for me to determine what I should speak to first. But just in the last few weeks, in fact, just since we met last in May, we saw the murders of Ahmad Arbery and George Floyd, which then exploded into these nationwide protests and even riots and looting. Among other issues, I think that these events particularly strain at our ability to judge the situation rightly. I think one of the things that for me personally has stressed me out is particularly watching the news and you see on the one hand violence done towards individuals uh, by law enforcement or by just uh, people in society. And on the other hand, you see violence done by those who have had violence done to them. And in doing that, you look at these situations and it seems like you can't tell which way is up. You can't tell what the right of a situation is. When I watched the, the rundown or the chase down of Ahmed Aubrey, I could not help but gasp as the the violence done towards that man who was obviously, if you watch the video, trying to avoid the situation. And when I watched George Floyd pinned to the ground and gasping for air as he called for his dead mother while he was being choked, I could not help but wince at the severity with which he was treated. It should have come as no surprise, and I don't think it came to anybody's surprise, that there were protests that resulted from that. Yet, it was equally as terrifying to me to watch as buildings burned and stores were looted and police were attacked and even in some cases killed. You see, 
I think these events are difficult for us to judge because we typically have such a nice, neat way of thinking about things and judging things, particularly here in America. We believe that if you work hard, you pay your dues, you live right and have enough faith, then the world and even God himself will reward you for your hard work. We believe that merit and position determine what you will be. Good work and a good name are the most important things to us. But what if two men just assume that you are up to no good because you're not in the place that you should be in a particular neighborhood? Does that mean that you deserve to be killed? Or what if all you've ever known is petty crime and street life? Does that mean that you need to be choked out on the side of that street? And if you do your best to enforce the law in in a just way, but just so happen to wear a badge, does that mean that you deserve rage and revenge? We aren't the first to believe that merit and position should determine your lot in life. In in, In fact, that belief goes all the way back to Genesis 4. If you remember back to our study in Genesis 4, we found that Cain was the best and the brightest hope for humanity because he was the firstborn of Eve. And as Eve expected, he would be that seed that would crush the head of the serpent. And yet, the only head that Cain crushed was his innocent brothers. Lamech believed that his power made him invincible, even to God. The people of Babel believed that they could build their way up into the heavens and fix their lot in life by peeking into the very throne room of God. As we've marched through the book of Genesis, we found time and again that God does not regard us based on our merit or our position, but on his own purpose of grace. Abel, though he was the second born and a lowly shepherd, was favored by God, while Cain, the firstborn craftsman, was rejected. Abraham was an old pagan from a foreign land who was married to a barren woman, and yet God promised to make him the father of a great nation. Ishmael was called the strong donkey of a man, which I guess meant he was rough and wild and tough and and a, a, a big, tough man, born to a young, capable slave girl. And yet God said that Isaac would be the one through whom the chosen line of promise would continue. So now we come to a transition in the story. In Genesis chapter 25, we have the end of Abraham's story and the beginning of Jacob's story. All of Jacob's life from this very point on is a life of striving. In fact, if you had one theme point to give for Jacob's life is that he strove with everyone. In fact, the name Israel that God gives to Jacob in chapter 33 is, or 32 means he strove with God. So Jacob, from his very beginning 
to his very end, strives against his father, his brother, his uncle, and even God. But from the very beginning, we find out that God has a purpose for Jacob that cannot be changed by human conniving. And there are three ways that I want you to see that played out in this passage today. First, we find in verses 19 through 21 that God again accomplishes the impossible by bringing about the conception of Jacob and Esau through Rebekah. Like her mother-in-law, Sarah, Rebekah too is barren. In fact, by the time she conceives Esau and Jacob, she has likely been barren for 20 years. However, unlike Abraham, Isaac prays that God would bless his wife. God then takes that which is barren and he brings about life from it. This is the way God works. He takes the barren void and he makes this beautiful creation. He takes the barren wombs of Sarah and Rebekah and he makes promised seeds. And he will take the barren and faithless heart of Jacob and he will make the great nation that he promised Abraham nearly a hundred years before. Second, I want you to notice that from the rest of this passage, we find that God's promise is not based on human will. Rebecca, in suffering under a painful pregnancy, pleads with God for understanding. It says that the, um, that the children struggled within her, and the word struggle there means to beat rocks together. So this was not like the normal kicking that babies do. This was, they were punching each other out in the womb, okay? This was rough stuff. And they're struggling within her. And in fact, what she prays, the way we translate this is, why is this so? Why am I going through this? But the way it is in the Hebrew is almost this exhaustion. And the idea is, why are you letting me live through this? Is really what she is asking there. And so she pleads with God, what are you doing and why is this going on? And as a result, she receives this prophecy that is made about her pregnancy. This prophecy reveals that there are actually two children in her womb. And the way that God says it is that there are two nations within her. And that one will be stronger than the other, but the older will serve the younger. We find out later that Esau was born first and then Jacob was born second. We also find out that Isaac loved Esau and that Rebekah loved Jacob. Now the love that Isaac had for Esau guaranteed that he would get the birthright. Not only was he guaranteed the birthright because he was first out of the womb and by the law of the land, effectively, he was to receive the birthright. But he also was guaranteed this birthright by Isaac's special love for him. And yet, even though Isaac had purposed that Esau would get the birthright, God had purposed that Jacob would receive the birthright before either of them had ever been born. And that would happen regardless of the intentions that Isaac had. Finally, from this text, we find 
that God's promise is not based on human merit. The author sets up this stark distinction between the mighty Esau on the one hand and the quiet tent dweller Jacob on the other. Esau is said to be hairy, which in, in some generations was a meaningful thing, a good thing. He's said to be tan, which is still a big deal today. Everybody wants to be tan. And he's said to be a mighty hunter or a great hunter. Jacob is effectively said to be good at cooking stews. <laughs> That's all Jacob is good for. He's a quiet little boy who dwells in tents. I guess today he would be said to be a gamer. He plays Xbox all day is what, what Jacob is in the story. There's nothing special about Jacob. Esau is this great-looking, powerful guy. Esau, by all accounts, deserves the birthright because he's the best-looking candidate. If you were wanting your lineage to continue, Esau's your man. He's the one that's strong and virile and, and able and can provide for the family. Jacob sits in his tent all day and makes stews. He doesn't do anything. Surely Esau deserves the birthright. But through the scheming of Jacob, God fulfills his promise and Esau gives away his birthright just as the prophecy had said that he would. In fact, we're, we're note, it notes at the very end of the chapter that Esau cared nothing for his birthright. Esau is betrayed as this animal of a man who didn't want what he had been granted by his father. You see, God didn't care about Esau's ruddy looks or his great hunting ability. And it's worth noting, God didn't care about Jacob's cunning or his quietness either. God's purposes for Jacob were not based on whether he deserved it or not. And yet, even with this story, the people of Israel, as they continued, the Jews could not escape the idea that they could somehow merit the favor of God. And so you have story after story of the Israelites, even though they see that it is not the greatness of a man or his position and authority that gives him a right before God, yet they thought that they could somehow, by their merit or their position, time and again, gain favor with God. So during the time of the judges, the Israelites got the great idea when they were fighting the Philistines one time to take the Ark of the Covenant and to put it at the front of the military lines and that use it kind of like a good luck charm that would give them success in their battle. And as a result of that, they lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. They gladly received Saul as their king because he was a head above everyone else and he looked the part only to find out later that he was mentally insane. They came to believe that God chose Abraham because he had some secret righteousness that was never portrayed in the story of Abraham. And they even came to believe that Jacob somehow merited his 
this prophecy that we just read because he did some good work in the womb. This is why when Christ was born, the religious leaders weren't even looking for for him. They were held up with the puppet king Herod, jockeying for position over the little power that Rome would give them. It was the foreign wise men, the people that were the furthest from God's truth, the furthest from his uh, chosen nation, Israel. Those wise men were the ones who were actually looking for the baby in the stable. And all of Jesus's life was foolishness to the human way of thinking. His ministry didn't start in Jerusalem, but in the backwaters of Galilee. He didn't preach to those in high position or try to change the government or the political structures. He went to the lowly and he healed the outcast. Jesus had the position of the eternal son of God, and yet he made himself nothing so that he might suffer for us. And Jesus gained power over sin and death by dying, not by conquering, not by abolishing the rules of this world, though he will do that when he returns again. But he gained victory and he gained preeminence by dying. You see, brothers and sisters, what we find from the beginning to the end of the Bible is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God takes what is barren and He makes it fruitful. He takes what is lowly and He makes it great. He takes what is outcast and He makes it kin. He takes what is despised and He makes it holy. But why? Why does God work like this? To answer that question, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Paul deals with this very question of why God deals the way he does with humanity in Romans chapter 9. And just to set it up for you, he, at the beginning of the chapter, and I encourage you to go and read all of chapter 9 this afternoon if you have the time. Read all of chapter 9 just to get what I'm saying. But he, what Paul is dealing with in chapter 9 is why the Jews have not come to Jesus. By and large, the Jews of Paul's day, and even to this day, the Jews rejected the Messiah that was promised to them. And Paul is trying to understand, trying to explain how God has not failed in His promises to Israel, even though many Jews have rejected Jesus. But he says, starting in verses 10 through 13, that God has always had a remnant whom He has chosen. In fact, back up in, I believe it's verse 5, he says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, there has always been a chosen remnant who God has used and has purposed for His grace throughout all of Israel's history. And he says, starting in verse 10, And not only so, 
But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now Paul uses this very story that we just read from Genesis chapter 25 to say that God's choice is not based on human works or position. He then goes on, if you skip down to verse 22 and 23, he goes on to say in those verses, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order that he that um, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, God does everything that he does that he might display his glory. Why does God save the lowly and the despised? Because it brings him glory. Why does God reject the proud? Because it brings him glory. Why did God save you? Because it brings him glory. Friend, if you think that your position or your merit will somehow gain you entrance into heaven, then you will be sorely disappointed. God's purpose of grace is to save those who give up every hope of reaching heaven through their own power and fall helplessly upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Won't you turn to Christ today? Brothers and sisters, if we have been chosen in Christ in spite of our own unworthiness, then we should think differently about our fellow man. If I am only worthy of heaven because God has chosen me and saved me, not because of my position or my merit, then there is no way that I can say that I am better or more deserving than anyone else. And if God in his mercy made me his child, then I should show mercy to those who uh, I come in contact with, those who are my neighbor regardless of their status or their merit. I should seek out the foolish, the despised, the outcast, and the helpless because God gains glory through His marvelous work of grace in, that he, in the lives of those the world would find unworthy. Brothers and sisters, today, if you find yourself feeling unworthy, if you find yourself feeling helpless, if you find yourself feeling as though there is no way you could merit or deserve the righteousness that God has placed on you through His Son, Jesus Christ, then take heart because that is exactly where God wants you to be. God did not choose you because you were worth it. God did not choose you because you deserved it. 
God did not choose you because of your family name or because of the things that you have done in this society or in this church. God has chosen you because you are foolish. (laughs) Sorry to break it to you. Because He wants to gain glory through you by showing that He can save even you. And so, yes, your sin can bring you to a point of despair. Yes, your sin can make you think that there is no way that you could deserve the kingdom of God. And that's because you don't. But Christ, in His mercy, has saved you because of God's purpose of grace in your life. And there is nothing, there is nothing that can take that away from you. There is no trial, whether it be COVID-19 or uh, racial divisions or riots or whatever it might be. There is nothing in this world that can take you out of the hand of the God who chose you and who saved you. So the hope that I have for you today is the hope of a God who does not measure you based on your merit or your position but He measures you based on His purpose of grace and His love for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the grace that is shown to us in Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did not die for us because we were worthy. He did not die for us because we, uh, of our family name or our position. He died for us because of His purpose of grace, to show His glory by saving the foolish things of this world, by taking those who were weak, who were helpless, who acknowledged that they cannot make it on their own, and making them children of God. Father, forgive us when we think that somehow we can add to that salvation by the works that we do, that we can somehow make ourselves more worthy by showing ourselves to be more righteous. But Lord, instead, may we respond to your grace in gratitude. And may we do the works that we do through our gifts and our talents for your glory, not because we think that we somehow can merit your your love, but rather because you have already loved us and saved us through your son. Father, may we look at other people rightly. May we judge them not based on our ideas of merit or position, but may we judge them based on your love for them displayed in your son, Jesus Christ. May we show them the love that we have been shown because we were foolish. We were outcast. We were strangers. We were despised. And yet you loved us and you made us part of your kingdom. Father, give us grace to go into this next week confidently knowing that you work all things together for our good and for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.